The peaceful rise and harmonious world theories evoke the principles of the classical era that had secured China's greatness. Gradualist, harmonizing with trends and eschewing open conflict, organized as much around moral claims to a harmonious world order as actual physical or territorial domination. They also described a route to great power status, plausibly attractive to a generation of leadership that had come of age during the social collapse of the Cultural Revolution, that knew its legitimacy now depended in part on delivering China's people a measure of wealth and comfort and a respite from the previous century's upheavals and privations. Reflecting an even more measured posture, the phrase peaceful rise was amended in official Chinese pronouncements to peaceful development on the reported grounds that the notion of a rise was too threatening and triumphalist. Over the next three years, through one of the periodic confluences of random events by which historical tides shift, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression coincided with a period of protracted ambiguity and stalemate in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the awe-inspiring 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, and a continued period of robust Chinese economic growth. The confluence of events caused some of China's elites, including portions of the upper echelons of China's government, to revisit the assumptions underlying the gradualist position articulated in 2005 and 2006. The causes of the financial crisis and its worst effects were primarily in the United States and Europe, it led to unprecedented emergency infusions of Chinese capital to Western countries and companies, and appeals by Western policymakers for China to change the value of its currency and increase its domestic consumption to foster the health of the world economy. Ever since Deng's call to reform and open up, China had seen the West as a model of economic prowess and financial expertise. It was assumed that whatever the Western countries' ideological or political shortcomings, they knew how to manage their economies and the world's financial system in a uniquely productive manner. While China refused to acquire this knowledge at the cost of Western political tutelage, the implicit assumption among many Chinese elites was that the West had a kind of knowledge worthy of diligent study and adaptation. The collapse of American and European financial markets in 2007 and 2008 and the spectacle of Western disarray and miscalculation contrasted with Chinese success seriously undermined the mystique of Western economic prowess. It prompted a new tide of opinion in China among the vocal younger generation of students and Internet users and quite possibly in portions of the political and military leadership to the effect that a fundamental shift in the structure of the international system was taking place. The symbolic culmination of this period was the drama of the Beijing Olympics, which took place just as the economic crisis was beginning to tear at the West. Not purely a sporting event, the Games were conceived as an expression of China's resurgence. The opening ceremony was symbolic. The lights in the vast stadium were darkened, at exactly eight minutes after eight o'clock, China time, on the eighth day of the eighth month of the year, taking advantage of the auspicious number that had caused that day to be selected for the opening, 2,000 drums broke the silence with one huge sound and continued playing for 10 minutes as if to say, we have arrived, we are a fact of life, no longer to be ignored or trifled with, but prepared to contribute our civilization to the world. Note, the number eight is regarded as auspicious in Chinese numerology. It is a near homonym for the word to prosper in some Chinese dialects. After that, the global audience saw an hour of tableau on themes of China's civilization. China's period of weakness and underachievement, one might call it China's long 19th century, was officially drawn to a close. Beijing was once again a center of the world, its civilization the focus of awe and admiration. At a conference of the World Forum on China Studies, held in Shanghai in the aftermath of the Olympics, Zhang Bijan, the author of The Peaceful Rise Concept, 
told a Western reporter that China had at last overcome the legacy of the Opium War and China's century of struggles with foreign intrusion, and that it was now engaged in a historic process of national renewal. The reforms initiated by Deng Xiaoping, Deng said, had allowed China to solve the riddle of the century, developing rapidly and lifting millions out of poverty. As it emerged as a major power, China would rely on the attraction of its model of development, and relations with other countries would be open, non-exclusive, and harmonious, aiming to mutually open up the route to world development. The cultivation of harmony did not preclude the pursuit of strategic advantage. At a July 2009 conference of Chinese diplomats, Hu Jintao delivered a major speech assessing the new trends. He affirmed that the first 20 years of the 21st century were still a strategic opportunity period for China. This much, he said, had not changed. But in the wake of the financial crisis and other seismic shifts, who suggested that the shi was now in flux? In light of the complex and deep changes now underway, there have been some new changes in the opportunities and challenges we are facing. The opportunities ahead would be important. The challenges would be severe. If China guarded against potential pitfalls and managed its affairs diligently, the period of upheaval might be turned to its advantage. Since entering the new century and the new stage, internationally there has been a series of major events of a comprehensive and strategic nature, which have had a significant and far-reaching influence on all aspects of the international political and economic situation. Looking at the world, Peace and development are still the main theme of the times. But the competition for comprehensive national power is becoming more intense. The demands of an expanding number of developing countries to participate equally in international affairs are growing stronger by the day. Calls to bring about the democratization of international relations are becoming louder. The international financial crisis has caused the current world economic and financial system and the world economic governance structure to receive a major shock. The prospects for global multipolarity have grown clearer. The international situation has produced some new features and trends worthy of extremely close attention. With world affairs in a state of flux, China's task was to dispassionately analyze and navigate the new configuration. Out of the crisis, opportunities might arise. But what were these opportunities? The National Destiny Debate The Triumphalist View China's encounter with the modern Western-designed international system has evoked in the Chinese elites a special tendency in which they debate, with exceptional thoroughness, and analytical ability, their national destiny and overarching strategy for achieving it. The world is witnessing, in effect, a new stage in a national dialogue about the nature of Chinese power, influence, and aspirations that has gone on fitfully since the West first pried open China's doors. China's previous national destiny debates occurred during periods of exceptional Chinese vulnerability. The current debate is occasioned not by China's peril, but by its strength. After an uncertain and sometimes harrowing journey, China is finally arriving at the vision cherished by reformers and revolutionaries over the past two centuries. A prosperous China, wielding modern military capacities while preserving its distinctive values. The previous stages of the national destiny debate asked whether China should reach outward for knowledge to rectify its weakness or turn inward, away from an impure if technologically stronger world. The current stage of the debate is based on the recognition that the great project of self-strengthening has succeeded and China is catching up with the West. It seeks to define the terms on which China should interact with the world that in the view of even many of China's contemporary liberal internationalists, gravely wronged China, and from whose depredations China is now recovering. As the economic crisis spread across the West in the period after the Olympics, new voices, 
both unofficial and quasi-official, began to challenge the thesis of China's peaceful rise. In this view, Hu's analysis of strategic trends was correct, but the West remained a dangerous force that would never allow China to rise harmoniously. It thus behooved China to consolidate its gains and assert its claims to world power and even superpower status. Two widely read Chinese books symbolize that trend. An essay collection titled China is Unhappy, The Great Era, The Grand Goal, and Our Internal Anxieties and External Challenges, 2009. And China Dream, Great Power Thinking and Strategic Posture in the Post-American Era, 2010. Both books are deeply nationalistic. Both start from the assumption that the West is much weaker than previously thought but that some foreigners have not yet woken up. They have not truly understood that a power shift is taking place in Sino-Western relations. In this view, it is thus up to China to shake off its self-doubt and passivity, abandon gradualism, and recover its historic sense of mission by means of a grand goal. Both books have been criticized in the Chinese press and in anonymous postings on Chinese websites as irresponsible and not reflecting the views of the great majority of Chinese. But both books made it past governmental review and became bestsellers in China, so they presumably reflect the views of at least some portion of China's institutional structure. This is particularly true in the case of China Dream, written by Liu Mingfu, a PLA senior colonel and professor at China's National Defense University. The books are presented here not because they represent official Chinese government policy. Indeed, they are contrary to what President Hu has strongly affirmed in his UN address and during his January 2011 state visit in Washington, but because they crystallize certain impulses to which the Chinese government has felt itself obliged to respond. A representative essay in China is Unhappy sets out the basic thesis its title posits that America is not a paper tiger, as Mao tauntingly used to call it, but rather an old cucumber painted green. The author, Song Shaozun, starts from the premise that even under the present circumstances, the United States and the West remain a dangerous and fundamentally adversarial force. Countless facts have already proven that the West will never abandon its treasured technique of commerce at bayonet point which it has refined over the course of several hundred years, do you think it is possible that if you return the weapons to the storehouse and put the war horses out to pasture, that this will convince the West to simply drop their weapons and trade with you peacefully? After 30 years of rapid Chinese economic development, Song urges, China is in a position of strength. More and more of the masses and the youth are realizing that now the opportunity is coming. After the financial crisis, he writes, Russia has become more interested in fostering its relations with China. Europe is moving in a similar direction. American export controls are now essentially irrelevant because China already possesses most of the technology it needs to become a comprehensively industrialized power and will soon have an agricultural, industrial, and post-industrial economic base of its own. In other words, it will no longer be reliant on the products or the goodwill of others. The author appeals to the nationalist youth and masses to rise to the occasion, and he contrasts the current elites unfavorably with them. What a good opportunity to become a comprehensively industrialized country, to become known as a country that wants to rise and change the world's unjust and irrational political and economic system. How is it that there are no elites to think of it? PLA Senior Colonel Liu Mingfu's 2010 China Dream defines a national grand goal to become number one in the world, restoring China to a modern version of its historic glory. This, he writes, will require displacing the United States. China's rise, Liu prophesies, will usher in a golden age of Asian prosperity in which Chinese products, culture, and values set the standard for the world. 
the world will be harmonious because China's leadership will be wiser and more temperate than America's, and because China will eschew hegemony and limit its role to acting as prima inter pares of the nations of the world. In a separate passage, Liu comments favorably on the role of traditional Chinese emperors, whom he describes as acting as a kind of benevolent elder brother to smaller and weaker countries' kings. Liu rejects the concept of a peaceful rise, arguing that China cannot rely solely on its traditional virtues of harmony to secure the new international order. Due to the competitive and amoral nature of great power politics, he writes, China's rise. And a peaceful world can be safeguarded only if China nurtures a martial spirit and amasses military force sufficient to deter or, if necessary, defeat its adversaries. Therefore, he posits, China needs a military rise in addition to its economic rise. It must be prepared both militarily and psychologically to struggle and prevail in a contest for strategic preeminence. The publication of these books coincided with a series of crises and tensions in the South China Sea with Japan, and over the borders of India, in such close succession and of a sufficiently common character as to prompt speculation whether the episodes were the product of a deliberate policy. Though in each case there is a version of events in which China is the wronged party, the crises themselves constitute a stage in the ongoing Chinese debate. About China's regional and world role, the books discussed here, including the criticisms of China's supposedly passive elites, could not have been published or become a national cause célèbre had the elites prohibited publication. Was this one ministry's way of influencing policy? Does it reflect the attitudes of the generation too young to have lived through the Cultural Revolution as adults? Did the leadership allow the debate to drift as a kind of psychological gambit, so that the world would understand China's internal pressures and begin to take account of them, or is this just an example of China becoming more pluralistic, allowing a greater multiplicity of voices, and of the reviewers happening to be generally more tolerant of nationalist voices? Dai Bingguo, a reaffirmation of peaceful rise. China's leaders decided to take a hand in the debate at this point, to demonstrate that the published triumphalism is far from the mood of the leadership. In December 2010, State Councillor Dai Bingguo, a highest-ranking official overseeing China's foreign policy, entered the lists with a comprehensive statement of policy, with the title "Persisting with Taking the Path of Peaceful Development." Dai's article may be seen as a response both to foreign observers concerned that China harbors aggressive intentions, and to those within China, including one posits some in the Chinese leadership structure, who argue that China should adopt a more insistent posture. Peaceful development, Dai argues, is neither a ruse by which China hides its brightness and bides its time, as some non-Chinese now suspect. Nor a naive delusion that forfeits China's advantages, as some within China now charge. It is China's genuine and enduring policy, because it best serves Chinese interests and comports with the international strategic situation. Persisting with taking the path of peaceful development is not the product of a subjective imagination, or of some kind of calculations. Rather, it is the result of our profound recognition. That both the world today and China today have undergone tremendous changes, as well as that China's relations with the world today have also undergone great changes. Hence, it is necessary to make the best of the situation and adapt to the changes. The world, Dai observes, has grown smaller, and major issues now require an unprecedented degree of global interaction. Global cooperation is therefore in China's self-interest. It is not a strategy for advancing a purely national policy. Dai continues with what could be read as a standard affirmation of the demand of the people of the world for peace and cooperation, though in context, it is more likely a warning about the obstacles a militant China would face. Probably, it is addressed to both audiences. Because of economic globalization, 
and the in-depth development of informatization, as well as the rapid advances in science and technology, the world has become increasingly smaller and has turned into a global village. With the interaction and interdependence of all countries, as well as the intersection of interests reaching an unprecedented level, their common interests have become more extensive. The problems which require them joining hands to address them have multiplied, and the aspirations for mutually beneficial cooperation have grown stronger. China, he writes, can thrive in such a situation because it is broadly integrated into the world. In the past 30 years, it has grown by linking its talents and resources to a broader international system, not as a tactical device, but as a means of fulfilling the necessities of the contemporary period. Contemporary China is undergoing broad and profound changes. Following more than 30 years of reform and opening up, we have shifted from class struggle as the key to economic construction as the central task. As we comprehensively carry out the cause of socialist modernization, we have shifted from engaging in a planned economy to promoting reform in all aspects. As we build a socialist market economic system, we have shifted from a state of isolation and one-sided emphasis on self-reliance to opening up to the outside world and development of international cooperation. These earth-shaking changes require that China abandon the vestiges of Mao's doctrine of absolute self-reliance, which would isolate China. If China fails to correctly analyze the situation, and as Dai insists, very satisfactorily manage our relations with the external world, then the chances offered by the current strategic opportunity period may likely be lost. China, Dai emphasizes, is a member of the big international family. Beyond representing simply moral aspirations, China's harmonious and cooperative policies are what are most compatible with our interests and those of other countries. Lingering beneath the surface of this analysis, though never stated directly, is the recognition that China has a host of neighbors with significant military and economic capacities of their own, and that China's relations with almost all of them have deteriorated over the past one to two years. A trend the Chinese leadership is seeking to reverse. With leaders of any country describing their strategies, a tactical element can never be excluded, as there was with the amendment of the phrase "peaceful rise" to the blander "peaceful development." In Dai's article, he specifically addresses foreign skepticism that his arguments may be largely tactical. Internationally, there are some people who say China has a saying. Hide one's capabilities and bide one's time, and endeavor to achieve something. So they speculate that China's declaration of taking a path of peaceful development is a secret conspiracy carried out under circumstances in which it is still not powerful. But this, Dai writes, is groundless suspicion. This statement was first made by Comrade Deng Xiaoping in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Its main connotation is. China should remain humble and cautious, as well as refrain from taking the lead, from waving the flag, from seeking expansion, and from claiming hegemony. This is consistent with the idea of taking the path of peaceful development. Peaceful development, Dai stresses, is a task for many generations. The importance of the task is underscored by the suffering of generations past. China does not want revolution. It does not want war or revenge. It simply wants the Chinese people to bid farewell to poverty and enjoy a better life, and for China to become, in contrast to the taunting rejectionism of Mao, the most responsible, the most civilized, and the most law-abiding and orderly member of the international community. Of course, however much grander goals might be disclaimed, countries in the region, those that have seen the waxing and waning of previous Chinese empires. Some of them stretching further than the current political borders of the People's Republic of China, find such disclaimers difficult to reconcile with China's growing power and historical record. Will a country that, for most of its modern period, which in China starts 2,000 years ago, regarded itself as the pinnacle of civilization, and that for nearly two centuries has regarded its uniquely moral world leadership position to have been usurped by the rapaciousness of Western and Japanese colonial powers? Be content 
to limit its strategic goals to building a moderately prosperous society in all aspects? It must, Dai answers. China is not in a position to be arrogant and boastful because it still faces tremendous challenges domestically. The gross domestic product of China, no matter how large in absolute numbers, has to be spread over a population of 1.3 billion, of whom 150 million live below the poverty line. Therefore, the economic and social problems that we encounter can be said to be the biggest and thorniest issues in the world. Hence, we are not in a position to be arrogant and boastful. Dai rejects claims that China will seek to dominate Asia or to displace the United States as the world's preeminent power as pure myths that contradict China's historical record and its current policies. He includes a striking invitation from Deng Xiaoping, so contrary to China's usual insistence on self-reliance, to the effect that the world would be allowed to supervise China to confirm it would never seek hegemony. Comrade Deng Xiaoping once stated, if one day China should seek to claim hegemony in the world, then the people of the world should expose, oppose, and even fight against it. On this point, the international community can supervise us. Dies is a powerful and eloquent statement. Having spent many hours over a decade with this thoughtful and responsible leader, I do not question his sincerity or intent. Still, granting that Hu, Dai, and their colleagues are stating in full candor their perspective for the next stage in Chinese policy, it is difficult to imagine that this will be the last word on China's world role, or that it will remain uncontested. A new generation of younger Chinese and rising party and PLA elites will come into office in 2012. The first generation since the early 19th century to have grown up in a China that is at peace and politically unified, that did not experience the Cultural Revolution, and whose economic performance outstrips that of most of the rest of the world. The fifth generation of Chinese leaders since the creation of the People's Republic, they will, as did their predecessors, distill their experiences into a view of the world and a vision of national greatness. It is on the dialogue with this generation that American strategic thinking needs to occupy itself. By the time the Obama administration took office, relations had fallen into a distinct pattern. Both presidents proclaimed their commitment to consultation, even to partnership. But their media and much elite opinion increasingly affirmed a different view. During Hu Jintao's state visit in January 2011, extensive consultation procedures were reinforced. They will permit increased U.S.-China dialogue on issues as they arise, such as the Korea problem, and attempts to overcome some lingering issues such as the exchange rate and differing views on the definition of freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. What remains to be dealt with is to move from crisis management to a definition of common goals, from the solution of strategic controversies to their avoidance. Is it possible to evolve a genuine partnership and a world order based on cooperation? Can China and the United States develop genuine strategic trust? Epilogue Does history repeat itself? The Crow Memorandum A number of commentators, including some in China, have revisited the example of the 20th century Anglo-German rivalry as an augury of what may await the United States and China in the 21st century. There are surely strategic comparisons to be made. At the most superficial level, China is, as was Imperial Germany, a resurgent continental power. The United States, like Britain, is primarily a naval power, with deep political and economic ties to the continent. China, throughout its history, was more powerful than any of the plethora of its neighbors, but they, when combined, could and did threaten the security of the empire. As in the case of Germany's unification in the 19th century, the calculations of all of these countries are inevitably affected by the re-emergence of China as a strong United State. 
Such a system has historically evolved into a balance of power based on equilibrating threats. Can strategic trust replace a system of strategic threats? Strategic trust is treated by many as a contradiction in terms. Strategists rely on the intentions of the presumed adversary only to a limited extent. For intentions are subject to change. And the essence of sovereignty is the right to make decisions not subject to another authority. A certain amount of threat based on capabilities is therefore inseparable from the relations of sovereign states. It is possible, though it rarely happens, that relations grow so close that strategic threats are excluded. In relations between the states bordering the North Atlantic, strategic confrontations are not conceivable. The military establishments are not directed against each other. Strategic threats are perceived as arising outside the Atlantic region, to be dealt with in an alliance framework. Disputes between the North Atlantic states tend to focus on divergent assessments of international issues and the means of dealing with them. Even at their most bitter, they retain the character of an inter-family dispute. Soft power and multilateral diplomacy are the dominant tools of foreign policy. And for some Western European states, military action is all but excluded as a legitimate instrument of state policy. In Asia, by contrast, the states consider themselves in potential confrontation with their neighbors. It is not that they necessarily plan on war. They simply do not exclude it. If they are too weak for self-defense, they seek to make themselves part of an alliance system that provides additional protection, as in the case with ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Sovereignty in many cases regained relatively recently after periods of foreign colonization has an absolute character. The principles of the Westphalian system prevail, more so than on their continent of origin. The concept of sovereignty is considered paramount. Aggression is defined as the movement of organized military units across borders. Non-interference in domestic affairs is taken as a fundamental principle of interstate relations. In a state system so organized, diplomacy seeks to preserve the key elements of the balance of power. An international system is relatively stable if the level of reassurance required by its members is achievable by diplomacy. When diplomacy no longer functions, relationships become increasingly concentrated on military strategy, first in the form of arms races, then as a maneuvering for strategic advantage, even at the risk of confrontation, and finally, in war itself. A classic example of a self-propelling international mechanism is European diplomacy prior to World War I, at a time when world policy was European policy because much of the world was in colonial status. By the second half of the 19th century, Europe had been without a major war since the Napoleonic period had ended in 1815. The European states were in rough strategic equilibrium. The conflicts between them did not involve their existence. No state considered another an irreconcilable enemy. This made shifting alliances feasible. No state was considered powerful enough to establish hegemony over the others. Any such effort triggered a coalition against it. The unification of Germany in 1871 brought about a structural change. Until that time, Central Europe contained, it is hard to imagine today, 39 sovereign states of varying size. Only Prussia and Austria could be considered major powers within the European equilibrium. The multiple small states were organized within Germany in an institution that operated like the United Nations in the contemporary world, the so-called German Confederation. Like the United Nations, the German Confederation found it difficult to take initiatives, but occasionally came together for joint action against what was perceived as overwhelming danger. Too divided for aggression, yet sufficiently strong for defense, 
the German Confederation made a major contribution to the European equilibrium. But equilibrium was not what motivated the changes of the 19th century in Europe. Nationalism did. The unification of Germany reflected the aspirations of a century. It also led, over time, to a crisis atmosphere. The rise of Germany weakened the elasticity of the diplomatic process, and it increased the threat to the system. Where once there had been 37 small states and two relatively major ones, a single political unit emerged, uniting 38 of them. Where previously European diplomacy had achieved a certain flexibility through the shifting alignments of a multiplicity of states, the unification of Germany reduced the possible combinations and led to the creation of a state stronger than each of its neighbors alone. This is why Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli of Britain called the unification of Germany an event more significant than the French Revolution. Germany was now so strong that it could defeat each of its neighbors singly, though it would be in grave peril if all the major European states combined against it. Since there were only five major states now, the combinations were limited. Germany's neighboring states had an incentive to form a coalition with each other, especially France and Russia, which did so in 1892. And Germany had a built-in incentive to break the alliances. The crisis of the system was inherent in its structure. No single country could avoid it, least of all the rising power, Germany. But they could avoid policies that exacerbated latent tensions. This no country did, least of all, once again, the German Empire. The tactics chosen by Germany to break up hostile coalitions proved unwise as well as unfortunate. It sought to use international conferences to demonstratively impose its will on the participants. The German theory was that the humiliated target of German pressure would feel abandoned by its allies and, leaving the alliance, would seek security within the German orbit. The consequences proved the opposite of what was intended. The humiliated countries, France in the Moroccan crisis in 1905, and Russia over Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1908, were reinforced in their determination not to accept subjugation, thereby tightening the alliance system that Germany had sought to weaken. The Franco-Russian alliance was, in 1904, joined informally by Britain, which Germany had offended by demonstratively sympathizing with Britain's Dutch settler adversaries in the Boer War, 1899-1902. In addition, Germany challenged Britain's command of the seas by building a large navy to complement what was already the most powerful land army on the continent. Europe had slipped into, in effect, a bipolar system with no diplomatic flexibility. Foreign policy had become a zero-sum game. Will history repeat itself? No doubt, were the United States and China to fall into strategic conflict, a situation comparable to the pre-World War I European structure could develop in Asia, with the formation of blocs pitted against each other, and with each seeking to undermine or at least limit the other's influence and reach. But before we surrender to the presumed mechanism of history, let us consider how the United Kingdom and German rivalry actually operated. In 1907, a senior official in the British Foreign Office, Eyre Crow, wrote a brilliant analysis of the European political structure and Germany's rise. The key question he raised, and which has acute relevance today, is whether the crisis that led to World War I was caused by Germany's rise, evoking a kind of organic resistance to the emergence of a new and powerful force, or whether it was caused by specific and hence avoidable German policies. Note, Crow knew the issue from both sides. Born in Leipzig to a British diplomat father and a German mother, he had moved to England only at the age of 17. His wife was of German origin, and even as a loyal servant of the crown, Crow retained a cultural and familial connection to the European continent. Was the crisis caused by German capabilities or German conduct? In his memorandum, submitted on New Year's Day, 1907, 
Crow opted for the conflict being inherent in the relationship. He defined the issue as follows. For England particularly, intellectual and moral kinship creates a sympathy and appreciation of what is best in the German mind, which has made her naturally predisposed to welcome, in the interest of the general progress of mankind, everything tending to strengthen that power and influence, on one condition. There must be respect for the individualities of other nations, equally valuable coadjutors in their way, in the work of human progress, equally entitled to full elbow room in which to contribute in freedom to the evolution of a higher civilization. But what was Germany's real goal? Was it natural evolution of German cultural and economic interests across Europe and the world, to which German diplomacy was giving traditional support? Or did Germany seek a general political hegemony and maritime ascendancy, threatening the independence of her neighbors and ultimately the existence of England? Crow concluded that it made no difference what goal Germany avowed. Whichever course Germany was pursuing, Germany would clearly be wise to build as powerful a navy as she can afford. And once Germany achieved naval supremacy, Crow assessed, this in itself, regardless of German intentions, would be an objective threat to Britain and incompatible with the existence of the British Empire. Under those conditions, formal assurances were meaningless. No matter what the German government's professions were, the result would be as formidable a menace to the rest of the world as would be presented by any deliberate conquest of a similar position by malice aforethought. Even if moderate German statesmen were to demonstrate their bona fides, moderate German foreign policy could at any stage merge into a conscious scheme for hegemony. Thus, Structural elements in Crow's analysis precluded cooperation or even trust. As Crow wryly observed, it would not be unjust to say that ambitious designs against one's neighbors are not as a rule openly proclaimed, and that therefore the absence of such proclamation and even the profession of unlimited and universal political benevolence are not in themselves conclusive evidence for or against the existence of unpublished intentions. And since the stakes were so high, it was not a matter in which England can safely run any risks. London was obliged to assume the worst and act on the basis of its assumptions, at least so long as Germany was building a large and challenging navy. In other words, already in 1907, there was no longer any scope for diplomacy. The issue had become who would back down in a crisis, and whenever that condition was not fulfilled, war was nearly inevitable. It took seven years to reach the point of world war. Were Crow to analyze the contemporary scene, he might emerge with a judgment comparable to his 1907 report. I will sketch that interpretation, though it differs substantially from my own, because it approximates a view widely held on both sides of the Pacific. The United States and China have been not so much nation-states as continental expressions of cultural identities. Both have historically been driven to visions of universality by their economic and political achievements and their people's irrepressible energy and self-confidence. Both Chinese and American governments have frequently assumed a seamless identity between their national policies and the general interests of mankind. Crow might warn that when two such entities encounter each other on the world stage, significant tension is probable. Whatever China's intentions, the Crow school of thought would treat a successful Chinese rise as incompatible with America's position in the Pacific and, by extension, the world. Any form of cooperation would be treated as simply giving China scope to build its capacities for an eventual crisis. Thus, the entire Chinese debate recounted in Chapter 18, and the question of whether China might stop hiding its brightness, would be immaterial for purposes of a Crow-type analysis. Someday it will, the analysis would posit, so America should act now as if it already had. The American debate adds an ideological challenge to Crow's balance of power approach. Neoconservatives and other activists 
would argue that democratic institutions are the prerequisite to relations of trust and confidence. Non-democratic societies, in this view, are inherently precarious and prone to the exercise of force. Therefore, the United States is obliged to exercise its maximum influence in its polite expression or pressure to bring about more pluralistic institutions where they do not exist, and especially in countries capable of threatening American security. In these conceptions, regime change is the ultimate goal of American foreign policy in dealing with non-democratic societies. Peace with China is less a matter of strategy than of change in Chinese governance. Nor is the analysis interpreting international affairs as an unavoidable struggle for strategic preeminence confined to Western strategists. Chinese triumphalists apply almost identical reasoning. The principal difference is that their perspective is that of the rising power, while Crow represented the United Kingdom, defending its patrimony as a status quo country. An example of this genre is Colonel Liu Mingfu's China Dream, discussed in Chapter 18. In Liu's view, no matter how much China commits itself to a peaceful rise, conflict is inherent in U.S.-China relations. The relationship between China and the United States will be a marathon contest and the duel of the century. Moreover, the competition is essentially zero-sum. The only alternative to total success is humiliating failure. If China in the 21st century cannot become world number one, cannot become the top power, then inevitably it will become a straggler that is cast aside. Neither the American version of the Crow Memorandum nor the more triumphalist Chinese analyses have been endorsed by either government, but they provide a subtext of much current thought. If the assumptions of these views were applied by either side, and it would take only one side to make it unavoidable, China and the United States could easily fall into the kind of escalating tension described earlier in this epilogue. China would try to push American power as far away from its borders as it could, circumscribe the scope of American naval power, and reduce America's weight in international diplomacy. The United States would try to organize China's many neighbors into a counterweight to Chinese dominance. Both sides would emphasize their ideological differences. The interaction would be even more complicated because the notions of deterrence and preemption are not symmetrical between these two sides. The United States is more focused on overwhelming military power, China on decisive psychological impact. Sooner or later, one side or the other would miscalculate. Once such a pattern is congealed, it becomes increasingly difficult to overcome. The competing camps achieve identity by their definition of themselves. The essence of what Crow described, and the Chinese triumphalists and some American neoconservatives embrace, is its seeming automaticity. Once the pattern was created and the alliances were formed, no escape was possible from its self-imposed requirements, especially not from its internal assumptions. The reader of the Crow Memorandum cannot fail to notice that the specific examples of mutual hostility being cited were relatively trivial compared to the conclusions drawn from them. Incidents of colonial rivalry in southern Africa, disputes about the conduct of civil servants, it was not what either side had already done that drove the rivalry. It was what it might do. Events had turned into symbols. Symbols developed their own momentum. There was nothing left to settle because the system of alliances confronting each other had no margin of adjustment. That must not happen in the relations of the United States and China insofar as American policy can prevent it. Of course, were Chinese policy to insist on playing by Crow Memorandum rules, the United States would be bound to resist. It would be an unfortunate outcome. I have described the possible evolution at such length 
to show that I am aware of the realistic obstacles to the cooperative U.S.-China relationship I consider essential to global stability and peace. A cold war between the two countries would arrest progress for a generation on both sides of the Pacific. It would spread disputes into internal politics of every region at a time when global issues such as nuclear proliferation, the environment, energy security, and climate change impose global cooperation. Historical parallels are by nature inexact, and even the most precise analogy does not oblige the present generation to repeat the mistakes of its predecessors. After all, the outcome was disaster for all involved, victors as well as defeated. Care must be taken lest both sides analyze themselves into self-fulfilling prophecies. This will not be an easy task. For, as the Crow Memorandum has shown, mere reassurances will not arrest the underlying dynamism. For were any nation determined to achieve dominance, would it not be offering assurances of peaceful intent? A serious joint effort involving the continuous attention of top leaders is needed to develop a sense of genuine strategic trust and cooperation. Relations between China and the United States need not and should not become a zero-sum game. For the pre-World War I European leader, the challenge was that a gain for one side spelled a loss for the other, and compromise ran counter to an aroused public opinion. This is not the situation in the Sino-American relationship. Key issues on the international front are global in nature. Consensus may prove difficult, but confrontation on these issues is self-defeating. Nor is the internal evolution of the principal players comparable to the situation before World War I. When China's rise is projected, it is assumed that the extraordinary thrust of the last decades will be projected into the indefinite future, and that the relative stagnation of America is fated. But no issue preoccupies Chinese leaders more than the preservation of national unity. It permeates the frequently proclaimed goal of social harmony which is difficult in a country where its coastal regions are on the level of the advanced societies, but whose interior contains some of the world's most backward areas. The Chinese national leadership has put forward to its people a catalog of tasks to be accomplished. These include combating corruption, which President Hu Jintao has called an unprecedentedly grim task, and in the fight against which Hu has been involved at various stages of his career. They involve as well a Western development campaign designed to lift up poor inland provinces, among them the three in which Hu once lived. Key proclaimed tasks also include establishing additional ties between the leadership and the peasantry, including fostering village-level democratic elections and enhanced transparency of the political process as China evolves into an urbanized society. In his December 2010 article, discussed in Chapter 18, Dai Bingguo outlined the scope of China's domestic challenge. According to the United Nations Living Standard of $1 per day, China today still has 150 million people living below the poverty line. Even based on the poverty standard of per capita income of 1,200 yuan, China still has more than 40 million people living in poverty. At present, there are still 10 million people without access to electricity, and the issue of jobs for 24 million people has to be resolved every year. China has a huge population and a weak foundation. The development between the cities and the countryside is uneven. The industrial structure is not rational, and the underdeveloped state of the forces of production has not been fundamentally changed. The Chinese domestic challenge is, by the description of its leaders, far more complex than can be encompassed in the invocation of the phrase, China's inexorable rise. Amazing as Deng's reforms were, part of China's spectacular growth over the initial decades was attributable to its good fortune that there existed a fairly easy correspondence between China's huge pool of young, then largely unskilled labor, which had been unnaturally cut off from the world economy during the Mao years, and the Western economies, which were on the whole wealthy, optimistic, and highly leveraged on credit, 
with cash to buy Chinese-made goods. Now that China's labor force is becoming older and more skilled, causing some basic manufacturing jobs to move to lower-wage countries such as Vietnam and Bangladesh, and the West is entering a period of austerity, the picture is far more complicated. Demography will compound that task. Propelled by increasing standards of living and longevity, combined with the distortions of the one-child policy, China has one of the world's most rapidly aging populations. The country's total working age population is expected to peak in 2015. From this point on, a shrinking number of Chinese citizens aged 15 to 64 need to support an increasingly large elderly population. The demographic shifts will be stark. By 2030, the number of rural workers between the ages of 20 and 29 is estimated to be half its current level. By 2050, one half of China's population is projected to be 45 or older, with a full quarter of China's population, roughly equivalent to the entire current population of the United States, 65 and older. A country facing such large domestic tasks is not going to throw itself easily, much less automatically, into strategic confrontation or a quest for world domination. The existence of weapons of mass destruction and modern military technologies of unknowable ultimate consequences define a key distinction from the pre-World War I period. The leaders who started that war had no understanding of the consequences of the weapons at their disposal. Contemporary leaders can have no illusions about the destructive potential they are capable of unleashing. The crucial competition between the United States and China is more likely to be economic and social than military. If present trends in the two countries' economic growth, fiscal health, infrastructure spending, and educational infrastructure continue, a gap in development and in third-party perceptions of relative influence may take hold. Particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, but this is a prospect it is in the capacity of the United States to arrest, or perhaps reverse by its own efforts. The United States bears the responsibility to retain its competitiveness and its world role. It should do this for its own traditional convictions, rather than as a contest with China. Building competitiveness is a largely American project, which we should not ask China to solve for us. China, fulfilling its own interpretation of its national destiny, will continue to develop its economy and pursue a broad range of interests in Asia and beyond. This is not a prospect that dictates the confrontations that led to the First World War. It suggests an evolution in many aspects of which China and the United States cooperate as much as they compete. The issue of human rights will find its place in the total range of interaction. The United States cannot be true to itself without affirming its commitment to basic principles of human dignity and popular participation in government. Given the nature of modern technology, these principles will not be confined by national borders. But experience has shown that to seek to impose them by confrontation is likely to be self-defeating, especially in a country with such a historical vision of itself as China. A succession of American administrations. Including the first two years of Obama's, has substantially balanced long-term moral convictions with case-to-case -case adaptations to requirements of national security. The basic approach, discussed in previous chapters, remains valid. How to achieve the necessary balance is the challenge for each new generation of leaders on both sides. The question ultimately comes down to what the United States and China can realistically ask of each other. An explicit American project to organize Asia on the basis of containing China, or creating a block of democratic states for an ideological crusade, is unlikely to succeed. In part because China is an indispensable trading partner for most of its neighbors. By the same token, a Chinese attempt to exclude America from Asian economic and security affairs will similarly meet serious resistance from almost all other Asian states. Which fear the consequences of a region dominated by a single power. The appropriate label for the Sino-American relationship is less partnership than co-evolution. 
It means that both countries pursue their domestic imperatives, cooperating where possible, and adjust their relations to minimize conflict. Neither side endorses all the aims of the other or presumes a total identity of interests, but both sides seek to identify and develop complementary interests. The United States and China owe it to their people and to global well-being to make the attempt. Each is too big to be dominated by the other. Therefore, neither is capable of defining terms for victory in a war or in a Cold War type of conflict. They need to ask themselves the question apparently never formally posed at the time of the Crow Memorandum. Where will the conflict take us? Was there a lack of vision on all sides, which turned the operation of the equilibrium into a mechanical process without assessing where the world would be if the maneuvering colossi missed a maneuver and collided? Which of the leaders who operated the international system that led to the First World War would not have recoiled had he known what the world would look like at its end? Toward a Pacific Community? Such an effort at co-evolution must deal with three levels of relationships. The first concerns problems that arise in the normal interactions of major power centers. The consultation system evolved over three decades has proved largely adequate to that task. Common interests, such as trade ties and diplomatic cooperation on discrete issues, are pursued professionally. Crises, when they arise, are generally resolved by discussion. The second level would be to attempt to elevate familiar crisis discussions into a more comprehensive framework that eliminates the underlying causes of the tensions. A good example would be to deal with the Korea problem as part of an overall concept for Northeast Asia. If North Korea manages to maintain its nuclear capability through the inability of the negotiating parties to bring matters to a head, the proliferation of nuclear weapons throughout Northeast Asia and the Middle East becomes likely. Has the time come to take the next step and deal with the Korea proliferation issue in the context of an agreed peaceful order for Northeast Asia? An even more fundamental vision would move the world to a third level of interaction, one that the leaders prior to the catastrophes of the First World War never reached. The argument that China and the United States are condemned to collision assumes that they deal with each other as competing blocks across the Pacific. But this is the road to disaster for both sides. An aspect of strategic tension in the current world situation resides in the Chinese fear that America is seeking to contain China, paralleled by the American concern that China is seeking to expel the United States from Asia. The concept of a Pacific community, a region to which the United States, China, and other states all belong, and in whose peaceful development all participate, could ease both fears. It would make the United States and China part of a common enterprise. Shared purposes, and the elaboration of them, would replace strategic uneasiness to some extent. It would enable other major countries such as Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, and Australia to participate in the construction of a system perceived as joint rather than polarized between Chinese and American blocs. Such an effort could be meaningful only if it engaged the full attention and, above all, the full conviction of the leaders concerned. One of the great achievements of the generation that founded the world order at the end of the Second World War was the creation of the concept of an Atlantic community. Could a similar concept replace or at least mitigate the potential tensions between the United States and China? It would reflect the reality that the United States is an Asian power and that many Asian powers demand it. And it responds to China's aspiration to a global role. A common regional political concept would also in large part answer China's fear that the United States is conducting a containment policy toward China. It is important to understand what one means by the term containment. Countries on China's borders with substantial resources, such as India, Japan, Vietnam, and Russia, represent realities not created by American policy. China has lived with these countries throughout its history. When Secretary of State Hillary Clinton rejected the notion of containing China, 
She meant an American-led effort aimed at creating a strategic bloc on an anti-Chinese basis. In a Pacific community effort, both China and the United States would have constructive relations with each other and all other participants, not as part of confronting blocs. The future of Asia will be shaped to a significant degree by how China and America envision it, and by the extent to which each nation is able to achieve some congruence with the other's historic regional role. Throughout its history, the United States has often been motivated by visions of the universal relevance of its ideals and of a proclaimed duty to spread them. China has acted on the basis of its singularity. It expanded by cultural osmosis, not missionary zeal. For these two societies, representing different versions of exceptionalism, the road to cooperation is inherently complex. The mood of the moment is less relevant than the ability to develop a pattern of actions capable of surviving inevitable changes of circumstance. The leaders on both sides of the Pacific have an obligation to establish a tradition of consultation and mutual respect, so that for their successors, jointly building a shared world order becomes an expression of parallel national aspirations. When China and the United States first restored relations 40 years ago, the most significant contribution of the leaders of the time was their willingness to raise their sights beyond the immediate issues of the day. In a way, they were fortunate in that their long isolation from each other meant that there were no short-term day-to-day issues between them. This enabled the leaders of a generation ago to deal with their future, not their immediate pressures, and to lay the basis for a world unimaginable then, but unachievable without Sino-American cooperation. In pursuit of understanding the nature of peace, I have studied the construction and operation of international orders ever since I was a graduate student well over half a century ago. On the basis of these studies, I am aware that the cultural, historic, and strategic gaps in perception that I have described will pose formidable challenges for even the best-intentioned and most far-sighted leadership on both sides. On the other hand, were history confined to the mechanical repetition of the past, no transformation would ever have occurred. Every great achievement was a vision before it became a reality. In that sense, it arose from commitment, not resignation to the inevitable. In his essay, Perpetual Peace, the philosopher Immanuel Kant argued that perpetual peace would eventually come to the world in one of two ways, by human insight or by conflicts and catastrophes of a magnitude that left humanity no other choice. We are at such a juncture. When Premier Zhou Enlai and I agreed on the communique that announced the secret visit, he said, this will shake the world. What a culmination if, 40 years later, the United States and China could merge their efforts not to shake the world, but to build it. This is Nicholas Horman. We hope you've enjoyed this production of On China by Henry Kissinger. Executive producer, Patty Peruse. Producer, Janet Stark. Published by arrangement with Penguin Audio, a division of Penguin Group USA, Inc. Text copyright 2011 by Henry Kissinger. Production copyright 2011 by Penguin Audio, a division of Penguin Group USA, Inc. And books on tape.